Amen. Good morning, Bayleaf. We gather this morning because there is none like him. And I just want to continue in that spirit, honestly. I'm going to ask you to pray with me as we open God's word and, and as we seek to unify our hearts in the truth and the reality that there is none, there is no one like him. Would you pray with me? Father, we just bow before we uh, engage your word and we ask, Lord, that you would uh, give us hearts that are ready to receive, Lord, ears to hear, eyes to see, Lord, that there is none greater than you. Father, we, we simply want to be captivated by your glory, by your power. Lord, would we just stand in awe of who you are? Thank you, Lord, for this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it is good to be with you this morning, Bayleaf. I'm, I'm glad to open God's word with you. Welcome if you're visiting with us. Uh, my family and I made our way back from the mountains yesterday. Uh, I like being in the mountains. I find it to be a refreshing place. Um, it's a, a place that I find life, if you know what I mean. Uh, some of you are beach people. Where are the beach people at? You're usually one or the other, all right? A handful of beach folks. The beach is, I don't, I don't, I don't understand why people like the beach. It's, it's exhausting. Um, you're, you're sandy and you're hot. And I've never met someone who's happy when they're sandy and they're hot. Um, but I'm glad to be back in Raleigh. It's, a, it's great to live in a place that you can access both, right? Um, but anyways, um, we're going to continue in our series this morning, Bayleaf, and we're going to be in our first epistle of our movement series, First uh, Peter. You can be turning there. In fact, it's our only epistle in uh, the movement series. Uh, as you're turning there, I'm going to invite you to think back a little bit with me. If you're like me, you, you like recaps, all right? I like the recap. If I'm reading a book, I'll pick it up to begin a new chapter, and, and I actually go back and read the last few pages, uh, or a show, right? I like the recaps for a show, because it, it reminds us of the big picture, okay? So just a couple weeks ago, we looked at Acts 2, if you remember, right? Pretty, pretty monumental moment, pretty significant moment in the storyline of Scripture, right? Where the Spirit of God falls on the people uh, and permanently indwells them, right? And we see this new community that is formed out of this in Acts 2, 42 through 47. We see this beautiful picture, don't we? of these new believers in this, uh, this community formed from the Spirit of God, and it says they had all things in common, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to, to prayer and the breaking of bread. And you, you read it, and you long for that, right? And you, you look at it and say, man, what, a, what an awesome scene that is. But Luke tells us that pretty quickly uh, things change, right? Disruption begins to take place. That beautiful picture of the church that you see right there in Acts 2 uh, sees some opposition pretty quickly, doesn't it? Because Satan sees that it's good and he sees what God is doing and he wars against it. And we see that externally and internally, don't we? With the church. As it's formed, you see immediate persecution. You see the martyrdom of Stephen, right? This external persecution coming against it. But you also see internal issues with Ananias and Sapphira, right? You've got this internal deceit and dishonesty, and on both fronts, you've got the attacks of the enemy trying to disrupt uh, and collapse what God's doing. It's, it reminds me of the garden in some ways, doesn't it? You have this beautiful picture just right there, Genesis 1-2, and then boom, immediately the plans of the enemy are coming against it, seeking to devour, seeking to destroy. And we'll talk about that this morning, and we want to be a people who are aware 
of the spiritual warfare. We want to be a people who are alert and understand there is an enemy, right? And I just want to put that out there uh, this morning that if you're sensing and uh, experiencing spiritual warfare, uh, it's a sign that, that you're a threat to the kingdom. Bailey, we want to make sure we understand that we are uh, public enemy number one for the enemy, and he seeks to tear down. He seeks to disrupt. He seeks to disunify the church. So fast forward just one more week, which was last week, and Jeff, Pastor Jeff led us through Acts 10 and 11, and, and that's where we saw the church of Antioch come together. We saw that's where they were first called Christians, right? And, and Jeff helped us see how you and I are uniquely equipped and empowered with the Spirit of God for the purpose of mission, for the purpose of engaging, for the purpose of reaching, right? We are uniquely qualified uh, and equipped to cross these certain boundaries and to be a people who take the gospel message. So it was an external focus for us, right? As you consider the formation of the church, it was an external uh, focus. This morning, we want to transition into an internal focus for a moment, all right? We want to look at what it means to be internally healthy, We need to look at both. Both are important. The Bible speaks to both, right? The external nature and the internal nature of the church. This morning is internal. If we neglect one, we'll end up in a dysfunctional place, right? Uh, Bayleaf is a a mission-minded church, aren't we? We are pretty good about being externally focused, but any church that is only externally focused and not internally minded will eventually become an arrogant church, when they grow, or a discouraged church when they shrink, right? Because we've made it all about results. We've made it all about our ability. And likewise, if we're only internally focused, we become a church that is hard to welcome people into the body, right? It's hard to invite others in who think differently, look differently, have different ideas, because we're only concerned about our internal culture. We don't want to be either one of those. We want to be healthy on both Counts, right? And so this morning we're going to step into 1 Peter and look at how we can be internally healthy. This is a health checkup in some ways, okay? So let's look at 1 Peter 4. Uh, we'll start in verse 7. And I'm going to read just that first statement that he makes and so, so that we understand really what he's starting us off with and, and what he means by it, right? He says in verse 7, The end of all things is at hand. All right, stop right there. The end of all things is at hand. What, what does he mean there? Is, is this a panicky statement, right? Like the sky is falling type thing? Is, is, he, is he one of those kind of crazy people who, who just throw out these random dates where the world's going to end, right? Every generation, someone's got an idea of when the world's going to end. I remember one year, it was on my birthday, all right? And I saw a billboard and everything. The world's going to end on May 11th. Um, and it just made it really hard to plan a party that year, if I'm honest, all right? Um, I'm still upset about that one. But uh, no, that's not Peter's point, right? He's not making this panicky statement, you know, the world's going to end. He's giving us a, a perspective on where you and I are in the timeline, right? He's calling into uh, account the full history of what God has done, the plan of redemption, right? We've seen God form a nation out of Abraham. Right? We've seen him covenant with his people. We've seen him send a Messiah who will seek and save the lost. And he became the final sacrifice on the cross. He rose from the grave, right, conquering death. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. The Spirit of God poured out on the people. The church has been formed. 
What's left? The second coming. And so he's saying to us, the space that you occupy in history is right here. It is the church age. Between Pentecost and the second coming. And so he has some instructions for us. If we are to last, if we are to be sustained, if we want to be a healthy church that is effective for the kingdom, he says, look, therefore, keep reading, verse 7, therefore, church, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So what we want to do this morning with our time is take that text and kind of divide it into two categories. Did you notice uh, kind of the two mindsets that he puts together there? First, we're going to see the the self-controlled, sober-minded category, if you will, right? There is an element about the Christian life that is very deliberate and focused, right, and intentional and self-disciplined, all right? There is a part of our Christian journey and our faith that involves those things, and we need to pay attention to that. But that's not it, right? That's not all the faith is. That's not all the church is. He actually goes on and says, Above all, though, right, what actually is priority here is loving one another earnestly, right? That word earnestly is the only place in the New Testament where it's even used, and it comes from the root word ektino, which means to stretch. Love one another in a way that stretches you, all right? Love each other in a way that's not always easy and not convenient. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins, right? In other words, without love for one another, you and I will just stand around keeping score, right? About that person getting on my nerves and that person's gossip and how that person frustrates you and we'll basically end up church hopping for the rest of our life looking for that perfect congregation. And Peter's saying, look, love covers a multitude of sins. It allows us to gather week in and week out and labor in ministry and the reality that we are broken, we are faulty people, we are sinful people, but there is a, a love and a hope greater than all of those things that unifies us and binds us. So we want to look at both of those things and fuse them together and see how that forms a healthy body. So first, looking at that first category, if you will, Peter says to be self-controlled, sober-minded. Your translation might say uh, serious and watchful or serious and disciplined or alert or have sound judgment and sober spirit. All of those are, are accurate translations, right? They all capture uh, the point that Peter's making here. Okay, this is the, the Christian disposition, if you will. The point that he's saying is that believers should have a, a keen awareness of the realities of your flesh as it wages war against you and the strategies of the enemy as it wages war against the body. You have to be watchful and alert. Peter's saying, don't walk around with your head down. We need to be a people who realize that the flesh is warring against the things of the Spirit and the enemy is warring against the people of God. We have to be like people who are watchmen over a camp, 
We are on guard, right? I read a book recently about um, Teddy Roosevelt's journey into the Amazon jungle. After his presidency, he uh, decided he would go on an, an adventure. I don't know if you know anything about him, but um, he was a pretty crazy fellow. He was uh, adventurous and, and pretty fearless. Um, so after his presidency, he said, I want to do something no one's ever done. And he went on a journey down the Amazon, one of the Amazon rivers, uh, and it almost killed him. But uh, the author of the book kind of tells us uh, a little bit about the Amazon. And basically, here's what you need to know. Uh, the Amazon and, and everything in it and everything about it exists to kill you. <laughs> um, so if you have any vacation ideas, just sub-note, like, you might die. Um, but the author makes it clear that everything in the Amazon is there to kill you, whether it's the animals, the insects, the fish, the weather, the tribes that occupy the land. It's all there to kill you, and you have to know that if you're going to go in there. And Teddy Roosevelt made a comment about his uh, experience when he first got to the jungle. He kind of had a picture of what it would be like, and it's kind of how I imagine it. Uh, he thought it would be lively and noisy and vibrant, but he found that it wasn't. It was the opposite, actually. It was quiet. It was very still, and there was no movement. And he learned eventually it's because everything in the Amazon is about survival. You're either hiding from being eaten, or you're slowly, stealthily stalking your prey. It's all about survival. And so over time, he learned that he and his men, we've got to always be on guard because everything here exists to kill us. We always have to be watchful, right? Even at night, they would have a, a watchman uh, while they were sleeping just to make sure everything was safe. Guys, in the same way, the church has to realize that we live in hostile territory. Peter addresses us here in verse 1 of chapter 1 as exiles, meaning you and I don't belong. Right? There is an enemy that is hiding and lurking around every corner that is seeking to devour. Peter will use the word sober-minded again in chapter 5 when he talks about the enemy. He says, listen, your enemy, the, the devil, seeks uh, and, and prowls around like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. How do we guard against that? Be sober-minded, he says. See, sober-mindedness and, and self-control are words that cause us to take root and to be grounded and to be anchored. We live in a world and in, in a time where it's very easy to be swept away, right, by the emotions of news media or social media or the emotions of your heart, right? Because the message and our culture is follow your heart. And so we just let our emotions take us like waves, every which way. That's not sober-minded, and that's not self-controlled. Now hear me, we're not a people who <clears throat> place our stake in the ground and say, I'm self-controlled and I'm sober-minded, meaning I'm legalistic and I'm determined that nothing's going to change. Or I'm just panicked and I'm scared, so I'm going to stay put. That's not the heart Peter's bringing here. He's saying this so that we understand what it means to be grounded. Our default nature is to drift. Our default nature, the human condition, is to latch on to these narratives that are thrown our way that kind of feed our preconceived notions and uh, affirm our biases. And, 
and we gravitate towards those things and we latch on because they make us feel comfortable. And before we know it, we've drifted all the way down here, right? And the Word of God's standing right over there where it's always been. To make it literal, here's an example. I remember being a kid in the ocean swimming, right? Maybe this is why I hate the beach. Bad kid memories, all right? I, I remember swimming, and, and you might have had this experience, but I'm out there playing and playing and swimming, and I look up to find the umbrella, you know, find my parents, and they're gone. They left. Right? So I walked up the beach, and I started looking, and I started walking down the beach. I don't know what else to do, and I'm looking, and I'm looking. Finally, my mom grabs me, right? They had never actually moved. They never left. I did. I drifted. Now, you can go talk to my parents on why they let me drift to another state, but (laughs) the point is, though, it's the human condition. That's what sin does. When When the Bible says the devil's trying to devour you, understand that that happens little tiny bites at a time. Before long, you you wake up and you have been riding this wave of emotion or some false lie or some narrative or some ideology that's trying to answer the problems and the questions that the gospel already answers. Root yourself in that, right? That's where we want to be as a church. The picture uh, of a sober-minded and self-controlled Christian, I think, is is in Psalm 1. And this is a, a passage I've come back to a lot this past year and a half. Because it's been a year of, of lots of tension and heightened emotions, right? And opinions. And, and so I'm just praying, God, I don't, I don't want to be swept up in some of these things. I don't want to live in fear. I don't want to live just as someone who's reacting to everything. Can you just give me some, some anch- like just anchor me. And he led me to Psalm 1 and I come back to it frequently where it says, Blessed is the man who, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a, what? A tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. You see the picture there, the visual? What did he give us? A tree. A tree, right? A tree endures season after season after season. The storms come and they go, but the tree stays. It's firm, it's planted, it's rooted. And the fruit comes year after year. It yields its fruit. And it's planted by the stream. It's a picture of being sober-minded. It's a picture of being self-controlled. The fruit keeps coming but we stay in the same place. And it's not because we're legalistic. It's not because we're stubborn. It's not because we're fearful. It's because we know where life is found. We know where forgiveness is found. We know where the ultimate answer is found. It's in Christ. We don't need to wander from that. Now notice here in the passage, in in this verse, he says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Right? Or yours might say, for the purpose of prayer. Um, so in other words, you and I cannot properly commune with God and be in relationship with God and pray if we are intoxicated with the things of this world and we are drinking in all that it has to offer to try to satisfy uh, our longings and our hopes. I think of the, the, the man, the Pharisee in Luke 18 who prayed and said, 
Lord, thank you that I'm not like this other man. That's a prayer with impaired vision. He is drunk on himself, right? His understanding of righteousness is based on his bar that he set. His vision's blurry. He doesn't see it. A sober-minded prayer would be more like the one in Psalm 90 where Moses prays, Lord, teach us to number our days. Right? It calls to mind the reality of eternity. It forces us to think about the temporary, and it draws us to be intentional in this moment that is but a mist. That's a sober-minded prayer. It calls to mind the reality and the temporary all at once. So as far as internal health goes, that's, that's Peter's first focus, right? He says, first and foremost, self-control, be sober-minded um, as, as a body, right, as believers. But he doesn't stay there, does he? He transitions and, in fact, says, above, above all, actually, priority is here, he says. Above all. I asked my four-year-old daughter, Ella, yesterday, I said, above all, sweetheart, what makes you the most happy? Um, she's, she's very little. She's little for her age, and, but she has very, very big feelings. You know what I mean? And so when she's mad, she's really mad. When she's happy, she's really happy. I said, sweetheart, above all, what makes you the most happy? She said, eating donuts. So if you want to know how to befriend my four-year-old, the donuts are the key to her heart. It takes priority with her. For us, Peter says, priority lies here, above all, right? Love, enough, love each other earnestly. Love covers a multitude of sins. This verse is essential in Christian relationship, isn't it? In fact, this truth is why the church exists, isn't it? We are only sustained because this gospel truth, love covers a multitude of sins. You see, we have to understand, we do not sustain ourselves, we do not succeed because of our abilities or our successes, nor do we collapse because of our deficiencies or our failures. We don't live and die by those things as the body. We live because of His love for us, because love covers a multitude of sin. This is gospel truth right here. His love for us is greater than our deficiencies and our faults and our brokenness. Therefore, we can come together unified, not in our successes, not in our abilities, but in the fact that we've been forgiven. This is the heart of Christ. This is unique to the church. There's no other institution, organization that operates like this. Think about it. Right? In your place of employment, your company, there's not a little cute sign in the break room that says, love covers a multitude of sins. No boss would hang that up. Right? It's more like, if you don't do your job, you're fired. Right? I mean, that's, that's, that's a business. You're paid to perform. You're paid to, to help it grow and succeed. Right? That's why you're compensated. No boss in the world is going to come to you and say, you know what, you're, you're massively underqualified and you're doing a terrible job, but I love you, and I want to keep you and put you on salary. Right? Like, that doesn't happen. 
But here in the church, you find a, a unique group of people being assembled and coming together who are massively unqualified, yet Jesus looks at us and he doesn't, start, he doesn't pull the best resumes. He actually pours out his spirit and says, now you're equipped. Not in your strength, not in your ability, not in your successes. You're not defined by your failures or your past. Go in my power. Go in the spirit of God. So he, he gives us this command that says, above everything, love earnestly. And then he branches out a little bit. Kind of gives us an example, if you will, on, on how that manifests itself. And he talks about hospitality real quick, right? And then spiritual gifts. But immediately here he says, be hospitable. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, we have to understand that hospitality here means love for stranger. In the South, we're, we're actually pretty good at being hospitable, I think. You know, a lot of people I meet from the Northeast um, or the West Coast even are shocked about how nice we are. So I'm, I'm proud of that, right? And I'm thankful for that. Um, and, but we need to understand that hospitable here is not just, you know, bring in your neighbor for sweet tea, which is... A hospitable thing but this is love a stranger love those who are different than you and who stretch you and do it here's the key without grumbling now he talks to church leaders in chapter 5 and he says a similar thing right he says hey look shepherd the flock that is among you not compulsively but willfully as God would have you so he's telling us the same thing church leaders church members hey would you get away from this version of Christianity that just operates out of guilt and obligation and puts you on this religious cycle that you feel like you've got to do all the things in order to check the right boxes so that you can maintain some Christian status? Peter says, I want nothing to do with it. Show hospitality, but do it without grumbling. How do we do that? This is a hard issue, isn't it? This is what Peter's talking about. Ultimately, this is, this is directed to your heart. He's not just saying, hey, keep your mouth shut. He's saying, no, do it with a heart that is glad and joyful. Do it because you've been transformed. Be hospitable without grumbling. And then he jumps into spiritual gifts, doesn't he? But he doesn't list them all out like Paul does um, in Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12. He generalizes. Because the point is not to list them. The point here is to tell you a few things. One, you have them. You uh, who are in Christ possess a spiritual gift. Not some of you, not one half of the room, all of you have a gift. And then he says, use it, steward it well for the purpose of the body and the glory of God. That's why you have a gift. Your gift is for one another and the glory of God. You see, our tendency is, as we begin to figure out, you know, our gifts and what we're good at, we begin to take that gift and, and form an identity around it, right? And we begin to place our self-worth in it. And that's, again, human nature. That's human condition. That's effects of sin. We take the good gift and we make it the idol, and it's insufficient, so we build our life on these things and find our identity in these things, right? That's why we see athletes go into major depression after they retire because they didn't just have a gift. They used their gift to make it their identity, and then they can't do it anymore, and 
their world crumbles. See, we have to recognize and realize that our gift, we don't find our identity in our gift. We actually find our gift in our identity, don't we? As a child of God. If you are in Christ, you've been given a gift. What's your gift? What is it? Think about it. What's your spiritual gift? You're like, I, I, I don't know. I, I didn't take that Facebook test that told me. <laughs> Look, there's a lot of good tools out there, um, and you can use them. But they didn't have that in the first century, right? Or most of history. You don't need it. It can be helpful. But here, let me help you. I'll ask you one question. Where does your mind go when I ask you this question? If I talk specifically to you and ask you, hey, I, how can you build up the faith of the church, and point them to Jesus. How would you go about doing that? Some of you are like, okay, um, I, think, I think I would teach. I think I would open the Bible and, and teach and help them understand, okay? And some of you are doing that, right? In Sunday school or, or with our youth, and you're teaching God's Word. Some of you are saying, that terrifies me. I don't ever want to do that. Okay, that's fine. That's why you've been given different gifts, right? Some of you serve really well behind the scenes, right? You're doing things people don't even see. And you're not asking for any recognition. Some of you serve faithfully. Right? Some of you uh, give generously. The Bible talks about giving as a spiritual gift, right? Some of you encourage people in a way that others simply can't, right? Like I try to be an encouraging person, but it's not my natural uh, default spiritual gift. Some of you are a Barnabas, right? You're just an encourager. Some of you uh, have a, an incredible ability to make well, uh, visitors and outside people feel really welcome, right? You're, you're disarming. You're compassionate in nature. Some of you have an unwavering faith. You have a faith that is so great and mighty that other people see the greatness of God because of your faith. And it's a gift. What's your gift? And are you using it? For the body and the glory of God? Or have you taken it and said, this gift is now my identity. Without it, I have no worth. That's unhealthy. There's plenty of churches around the world filled with pews with people who, have, who think they have the spiritual gift of criticism or consuming. We got enough of that, right? What's your actual spiritual gift? God has given you. Are you using it? And that goes back to what Peter said about love. That's what it overflows out of. When Paul talks about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, he starts 1 Corinthians 13 by saying, hey, honestly, without love, without this love, I'm what? A clanging symbol. The most obnoxious thing you could ever think of. Then he says, without love I am nothing. I am nothing. I don't care how talented you are. I don't care how gifted you are. If you cannot love one another earnestly, we're nothing. And so as we, as we walk away thinking about this, we want to take those two categories that Peter puts in front of us. We want to fuse them together, right? How do we respond to this text? How do we fuse those things together? Well, we got to examine, right? How can we walk away as a body saying, okay, here's where I need to be more sober-minded. 
self-controlled, right? Tonight or this morning might be the moment where you realize, man, I think I've been walking around with my head down and I've been focused on this task and I'm not looking at things with eternal value, right? Maybe this morning you're realizing that, like, gosh, I'm, I'm kind of being swept away. I'm, I'm gravitating toward things that are trying to answer uh, problems and answer questions that the gospel already satisfies. So how can we be more sober-minded, self-controlled? And then on the other end, right, like how can we love each other earnestly? How does that practically work itself out? Because I can't nor can anybody make you love anyone, right? Like that's impossible. This is a spiritual issue, isn't it? This is a heart issue. That's the whole point. And Peter's wanting us to be a people who are genuine in our hospitality, genuine in the way we steward our gifts, authentic, because you've been transformed. So how do we do that? Well, we commune with God in prayer by making sure we're not intoxicated by the things of this world, but we are coming to him as self-controlled, sober-minded, calling upon him, saying, Lord, I need you to change my heart. I cannot love these people earnestly like you're calling me to in my own strength. This is the work of the Spirit, which is what this series is all about. So as we conclude, I want us to keep those things in mind as we seek to move forward, as we seek to be internally healthy and externally efficient for the kingdom of God. Okay, church, let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for our time. We're thankful that, Lord, you meet with us in in this time. God, that you are not a, a God who stands at a distance, but, Lord, you are one who is present with us. So I pray, God, as we, uh, as we look at this text, as we unpack your truth, that, that it would not be something that, that stays here, but, Lord, we would take it with us and we would put these into practice and that we would, they would sink into our heart and into our soul and we would look like the church that you've called us to be and designed us to be. Lord, I thank you for this body, and I thank you for these people. I thank you that we can suffer well together and that we can rejoice well together. I pray you continue to build us up, Lord, and that you would use the body of Christ to encourage one another in the faith and always point each other to Christ. Lord, as we respond, give us, give us courage to do so. God, give us clarity to do so. And lead us, Lord, with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.